space is part of the music. Just because there's space doesn't mean, oh, we better fill that. It, it's part of the music. And so I thought it would be enough if I just went to, I'll play quiet. They said, no, don't play. I said, okay, I'll just chop. And they said, don't even chop. And I said, you mean just stand there and hold the banjo? And they said, try it. I know what you're all thinking. You're all thinking, hey, Keith lives up there in Michigan. It's the middle of spring. It's got to be great. When is he going to finally move and record all these intros in his famous backyard studio? Well, the answer, folks, is today, right now. I know you like to keep track of the Michigan bird scene. You need to keep tabs on some of that background traffic, maybe some planes flying overhead. It's really quite exciting. And by backyard studio, what it is is a a 10 by 10 pop-up tent, but it's much nicer than being stuck in my basement doing these instead. So I'm uh, I'm taking advantage and um, I trust you can you can hear the effects of that. And I hope it brings you, you know, some inner peace that only sitting in a nice backyard can do. Welcome everyone. It's the Picky Fingers podcast. I'm Keith Billick. Thanks for joining me. I'm going to try to make this quick. I know this is a longer episode, but uh, the first thing I need to make sure that you know about is a special giveaway. And this one is from Banjo Lit. You can go to banjolit.com. You can see that they make all sorts of cool banjo related accessories and tools. Most famously, you've seen those cool beveled wooden armrests that people are using. They're much more comfortable than the standard metal armrests. Well, they've provided me one of those and also some t-shirts and some stickers to give away to you, the listeners. Now, the only catch is the way that you enter the drawing to potentially win some of those prizes is you need to be a Patreon supporter. So go to patreon.com slash banjo podcast And if you subscribe to support the podcast at any level, you will be automatically entered into the drawing. Now, the the other catch to that is you need to be signed up no later than May 31st, 2021. So if you're not listening to this until after that, you should still go to the Patreon page. There's tons of great prizes, but this will not be one of them other super cool prizes on patreon you get two tracks of music the intro theme music and the outro theme music along with banjo tablature for both of those another perk is vip lounge that's very important picker lounge invites we have one later today so i'm really looking forward to that what that is is a video meet and greet with me and other fellow listeners where we chat about banjos and life and I mean, really, those are the only two topics I can think of. There's also options to get t-shirts and also in-episode shout-outs to personally thank you for your support. And we have one of those today. Today's Patreon supporter of the episode is Bill Livesay. He lives out in Southern California, and he's been going to a weekly jam. This jam has been going for 30-plus years. Bill's been going for the last 10 And he finds the podcast a good way to help him stay motivated to to practice for these jams and and be his best self. So, Bill, thank you very much for your support. I'm really glad to hear that you're having fun at those jams and that the podcast is helping in some small way. So once again, all those Patreon rewards can be checked out at patreon.com slash banjo podcast. 
And of course, the most important thing about the Patreon page is that it goes directly to support the show and lets you count on hearing from all of your favorite banjo players for years and years and decades to come. Other great ways to support the show, you can buy some super cool t-shirts and downloads for of the music over at banjopodcast.com. You can track me down and follow me on all the socials, spread the word about the show to all your friends and neighbors, or you can also just send me feedback at pickyfingersbanjopodcast at gmail.com. I do get a lot of emails from you and I, I read them all and I really enjoy hearing what you think and your suggestions and your questions. So keep those coming as well. Today's special guest is Pete Wernick, Dr. Banjo himself. Pete is best known as the banjo player for the great bluegrass group Hot Rise, but I think he has had just as much of an impact in his teaching. I I have no stats to back this up, but I bet he has directly or indirectly taught more banjo students than anybody else ever. He he has one of the best-selling banjo instructional books, and he's also made scores of other videos. He's hosted jam camps. He you know, has taught at himself at camps. So he has been out there for decades teaching people how to jam and how to play banjo and performing and doing it himself. And as part of all that experience, he just seems to have an analogy or advice regarding every aspect of banjo playing, and he did not hold back on that advice here. There's going to be a lot for you to pick up on, a lot of words of wisdom from Pete, and uh, I, I think you would be well served to listen to the advice, and I bet you will hear some things that can help you in your playing. Now, part of him giving tons of advice means this is a long episode, and I keep it all as one episode at the request of you fans. I was actually pretty surprised. I've done a lot of these part one, part twos of the longer interviews, but I asked people on our Facebook group, the Picky Fingers listeners, fans, and friends page on Facebook, or it's a group on Facebook rather. So check that out too. But overwhelmingly, you listeners told me that you would prefer to just keep it all as one episode instead of breaking it up. So so here it is. I'm taking your advice. And this is where I'm tempted to make some dad jokey, corny pun about the doctor will see you now, or this episode is just what the doctor ordered. But I'm not going to make any of those jokes because that would be just too cheesy, even for me. So I'm above that. And you don't want to hear me anymore. Let's get to the interview with Dr. Banjo, Pete Wernick. in the Bronx in 1946 and when I was growing up in the Bronx I had friends who were folkies and we we had a lot of other interests uh, but at a certain point like when I was around 13 my friends were playing folk music quite a bit with guitars and banjos and I had a couple of friends who could play sort of Pete Seeger style banjo and I couldn't play anything I'd never had lessons in anything and I was well actually I'd had a couple of pretty useless banjo lessons where 
a student of my dad, who was a math teacher, knew how to play banjo. So he had the guy come over to my house and we had a banjo in the house, which was a a rather high action antique banjo that my dad had gotten at an auction. It was just in the house and I never did much with it. But since he knew I liked the banjo, my dad got this guy to come and he showed me a couple of things that I wasn't interested in. And then I went away for the summer and never resumed. So I can't accurately say I never had lessons, but what happened is when my friend Jake said, hey, uh, you like the band, you want to learn how to play frailing? I said, sure. And he showed me the basic, uh, you know, frailing move. And I'll even play the first thing I attempted to play, which was... There it is. I hope that sounded like John Henry. That Some John Henry. Yeah, I, I could recognize it. So good. Yeah. <laughs> and they would play folk songs that were big at the time, even stuff like um, uh, Charlie and the MTA by the Kingston Trio. And the Weavers were big role models for us. I had the Weavers at Carnegie Hall record, and we did Darling Corey and Hard Ain't It Hard and This Land Is Your Land. And I could strum along Pete Seeger style. I had an early edition of Pete's book, not the one with the red cover, and I still have this old one. And um, so with a little bit of reading Pete Seeger's book and mostly my friends, and one of them even gave me a songbook of songs that were popular in our little group, and I would stay at home and flip pages in the songbook and play the chords and then try to sing along. And my singing was kind of pathetic, but turned out that... When you're playing a chording instrument and you're trying to sing, the chords that you hear from the instrument kind of help you sing in tune because a lot of the notes you're trying to sing are right there in the chord. And, you you know, when I picked the familiar keys, sure enough, my voice started falling in to the right key. <laughs> so yeah. I was really uh, at handicapped, but I was so determined that uh, the de determination trumped everything. Then I turned my attention to Scruggs, and within a couple of months of when I started playing, Earl and Lester came to town in New York City. So in January 1961, when I was not quite 15, I got to sit in the third row and watch Earl Scruggs, and it was totally a watershed event for me. I don't remember anything that happened in school that year, but I can completely remember <laughs> seeing Earl, and what was amazing about that was he would play just a couple of leading notes, bum, 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 which I could tell what he was doing. But then the next things he would do is the roll would get going. And then I'd figuratively at least fall on the floor in amazement. And I really became determined to learn how to play like Earl. But I had no idea and, and nobody I knew had any idea, uh, which was pretty common in the early 60s. So I did get two records for my 15th birthday from my sister who later regretted it made me practice in the basement <laughs> instead of in my bedroom right. and um, I could hear Earl's breakdown I could tell what the chords were because I had been playing folk music with my friends and I could hear one four five type chord changes 
And Earl uh, puts a little thing in every instrumental that is not the roll, like in Earl's breakdown, the bing, bang, bum, bum. Uh-huh. And then, you know, Scruggs, uh, Shuck and the Corn, bum, 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 bum. So, you know, those were like little hooks that I could say, well, I, I could figure that out. And then someplace along the line, I, I could tell he was going the beginning of the, like, the roll in my sweet baby's arms thing. Yeah. And I just kept going, learning any lick I could, and basically taught myself Scruggs style there just listening to this record. People said, oh, you slowed it down. And I said, no, I didn't have any way to slow it down. I just tried. And my rhythm was bad. I still remember vividly going to uh, some people's house to do some jamming and playing along. And finally, somebody came up to me and very discreetly and quietly spoke in my ear and said, please don't play. You're screwing everybody up with your rhythm. Oh, no. <laughs> and he was so nice about it. I don't, even, I don't think I even knew the guy. But it was a model of discreet behavior to save the jam session. And I've learned that lesson well, that if, if somebody's misbehaving, they're out of tune or something that's messing up a jam session, if there's any way to get the person to behave better, it'll save the jam session. So looking, looking back at it, what do you think your issue was with being able to, I mean, obviously you've overcome not being able to play in time. Uh, If you could go back and you had a student such as yourself that was having that problem. Well, I can uh, tell you things that I would try to do, but what I ended up doing is you get some real music recorded by people who know what they're doing and you play along with it. Mm -hmm. And I've recorded some play along videos and I won't drop the name, but a pretty famous student of mine who had trouble keeping time. And I was over to his house and I said, why don't you just sit with my play along video and play along with it? And after a half hour, he came back in to where I was and he says, it, I keep losing it. It keeps losing me. I said, there's no cure for that. Just turn it up loud. Because if you hear it loud enough, you'll hear when you got out of time. And if you go back and play that again and make sure that you land the change to the C chord or the G chord right when the recording does, then that's like wearing braces when with your teeth. You're, they're trying to grow the wrong way, but the braces won't let them. And your ears won't let you play along with something when it got ahead of you or you got ahead of it. And it, it really did cure the problem. The guy went on to becoming quite well exposed as a banjo player and in fact, the people he was playing with uh, thanked me. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. Uh, anyway, that's the cure, and that's what I tell people. It's even in some of my advertising. If you're having a problem playing in time, you need this. And, and what it is is a choice of three different play-along videos, and the slowest one is super slow, and that's the one most people get to begin with. And if you do a TITM roll, you know, what's sometimes called the, uh, the square roll, or there's a lot of names for alternating thumb, yeah. that's a good roll to play uh, along with any music because the four notes makes up one beat's worth of music. Right. And the thumb starts each group of four on an inside string like the third string. And you can really create a very steady rhythm with that. In fact, if you sing... Thank you. 
And anybody can do that role, thumb index, thumb middle. It's just not hard. And after a while, it becomes uh, muscle memory. And then you can do it like you're walking. You don't have to think about it. Left foot, right foot, left foot, right. It, it just does it by itself. And everybody has that potential for muscle memory taking over an important job like walking or, uh, you know, things that we do while and we can talk while we do it. If you can talk while you're doing something, then it shows that it must be in muscle memory. And that's what you need. There's a huge amount of muscle memory involved in playing Scrug style. And in fact, what I liken it to, and one of my very best tips for learning banjo uh, to play, learn how to play breaks, is first you have, if you're going to ever work out a break, you have to be able to work, find a melody on the instrument, even if it's just with one finger. Uh, anybody who's trying to learn how to play solos but cannot find a melody on the instrument by themselves is should not be working on a tab at all. They should try to be playing by ear where they can find a melody. And that can be hard for some people, but the big hint is that the melody is usually, the most important melody notes are found in the correct chord that you're playing. So you don't have to look up and down the neck and on all the strings, just play the right chord, and there, one of those notes in the chord will be the note you're looking for. So yeah. that's a great um, aid in hunting melodies. So I absolutely require people, first of all, they should get a roll or two down, which can be done just by muscle memory practicing, and then I make them try to find a melody. And a lot of people can do that pretty quickly, and a lot of them can't. But I don't want to push them any further until they have a melody that they can play. And then here's the analogy Going back to walking, if you're walking along a city sidewalk and there's lines on the pavement every four or five feet, you could be talking with your friend as you're walking along the sidewalk and decide while you're talking to only make sure your right foot steps on every line on the sidewalk mm -hmm. as you're walking. You can do that and not interrupt your talking. It's easy enough. And then you can also avoid that line or you could... Just say, I don't care which foot steps on the line, but one or another foot has got to step on every single line. Yeah. Okay, let's move the analogy over to the banjo. And instead of your legs walking, it's your three fingers moving on the instrument. And your foot is your thumb. Okay. Or maybe the index finger. And just make sure that every melody note, when it's time, some finger gets over to the string that has the melody on it. Yeah, okay. And that is that gives you the way of incorporating melody notes into a roll, which is mysterious for most people at first. But if you can do that, then you can at least create an out-of-time banjo arrangement and yeah. then fix it up by playing along with a recording. So if you can work out one song like that, you broken through the barrier, and then the next thing to do is work out another and another and another. Along the way, I show them a few licks that are the common licks that make something sound Scrug style. Like if you're going to play a third string open, yeah, that's okay, but you could also play the fourth string at the fifth fret and get a slide in there, and now you're sounding a little more like Scruggs. And anytime a new player does anything on their banjo that sounds like Scruggs, it's like... The, Somebody just brought him a big birthday cake, and <laughs> <laughs> it's a huge reward. And that's one of the things I, I stopped doing banjo camps for many years, 
So I stopped doing banjo camps, but the thing I miss about it is watching these breakthroughs happen before my eyes. That's life-changing. A lot of people refer to it as life-changing. But even more people refer to learning how to jam as life-changing because it changes even their social life uh, to know how to jam. I think I think more often than not, peop, that's why people are learning the instruments so that eventually they can play with other people and have fun with exactly. the social element of that. So I think you're right. That's that was an important realization for me because having there was a period of time, probably ten years, where I was doing both jam camps and banjo camps, mm-hmm. or even fifteen years I was. And I got to say, the money was great. It was nice to be able to support myself when I was not in a money-making, performing band. This was after Hot Rise disbanded. And uh, I still drive a 1998 Avalon because <laughs> 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 it works, and I'm, why get another one? Uh, so I don't live rich, but I, I live within my means, and when I need money, r- running a camp is great. And one of the things, in fact, it gives me a huge satisfaction to know that I'm helping a lot of people earn money as teachers by showing them how to teach the, the Wernick method. So I have a number of teachers who teach a lot of jam classes all over the country. And I have, uh, there's at least 50 teachers or so all over the world. There's one in Australia, there's two in France, one in the Czech Republic, and they're making money. And uh, we did a calculation and, and our Wernick method teachers have now taken home for themselves over a million dollars collectively. Not each one. <laughs> no millionaires. That's but, more than all the banjo players combined. Yeah, well. That's cool. Yeah, you, you've referred a couple times now to your Wernick method. If you had to give like an elevator pitch version of okay. what what is the Wernick method as distinguished from anyone else's lessons, uh, what, what well, would you say to that? The elevator speech is we show people how to function in a jam session and be comfortable. We show the ground rules, we introduce them to repertoire, and we coach them while they're playing in a jam. We, the thing that makes us very different from other jam classes that I've heard about is it's not about standing in front of a whole crowd of people and getting them to follow you. That's a skill. That's great to learn. But it's not the same as being in a circle of five people, including a guitar and a bass and a fiddle, and learn and just try so there's a lot of clutziness at first, but we got coaches who know how to coach. And we even have an eight-page guide for the coaches on when to stop them and when to not stop them and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And how to coach, like one of the – say the elevator's off, but we're still walking down the hall together. <laughs> it's in the penthouse, yeah. <laughs> and I say, well, a typical thing is there's a circle of people and the mandolin player starts chopping on the on beats. And people don't know why everything feels weird, but they don't like it. And I'm the coach, so I, I know the mandolin player's doing this. So I walk around to the outside of the circle where the mandolin player is, and I just speak quietly while the playing is going on. And I say, you're chopping on the on beat, but you need to chop on the off beat. And I clap for them, and then they get it right. Then I move away, and, but they can still see me. And when they slide back into the on beat, I get their attention <laughs> And then I start clapping, and then they correct it. That's a, one of the more common things that we do. Or you ever been in a jam session? I know you have. Where wouldn't it be great if one person would just tune their instrument? Uh, it's usually me, I think. But, it could be. Yeah. 
But we, I even have protocols on how to communicate to a person that they're out of tune in a way that doesn't challenge them too much. Like I've been in jam sessions where somebody says, you're out of tune. Tune that guitar, would you already? That's very rude. But if you say, oh, I'm tuning. Hold on. I'm tuning my banjo. You want to use my tuner? Mm-hmm. that's like the bad breath thing where you take a breath mint and then you offer one you, to the you bad are. breath person and it's pretty easy to get them to take the, the bad breath medicine. <laughs> so basically by the end of a single Warnick method class, they typically are fine. They've been jamming. They've been leading songs. They've been faking breaks on new songs, doing all the things they aspired to do. Their tablature that they've been memorizing is fully useless they're not going to be able to play any of that stuff up to speed in a jam in general. If they can, more power to them. We say, okay, why don't we do Circle Be Unbroken and you'll play your break when it's time. But then the problem is a lot of people, when they start their break, they need they screw up and then they do it again. You can't do that in a <laughs> jam session. But you can do it at home when you're a closet player and you don't even know you're doing it. Yeah. So when they go to a jam and they can't get that break going at the right time, they're mad at themselves because, hey, I can do it at home. But the way to do it at home is to do it with a recording where you're supposed to come in at a very definite time. So on our play-along recordings, we have sections in each song where we just look at the screen and say, take it. (laughs) And then they're supposed to come up with a break. And uh, when a banjo player realizes that they can play a real break, even on a song that they don't know at first, that's a huge feeling of progress. And I love helping people achieve that. Yeah, that's really empowering. So a lot of people know you as uh, Dr. Banjo, of course, because of your degree in sociology. And hearing you talk about jamming and the joy you get for fostering that, it strikes me that there's, there's got to be a connection between your studying sociology and now you're shepherding all these uh lost jamming sheep into, into bluegrass jams do <laughs> I you love see your a analogy <laughs> it's off the cuff man uh do you see an analogy between those and and what do you think it might be well i have to say that when i was testing about for a major in college I thought sociology would be real interesting, and uh, we were given a chance to write about sociology in our real lives. So my first paper that I ever wrote for sociology was, believe it or not, the sociology of bluegrass jam sessions. (laughs) And then you get to talk about the pecking order, who's who's in charge and who is hanging on for dear life, and uh, just how the interactions work and how people work their way into jams. First, they're observers and then they move in and they see if they can get away with being part of the jam session or so there's a lot of sociology going on anytime people are together there's power relations and such and it really helped in the case of uh, getting into bands uh, like in in hot rise which we had the record at for a while for 12 years of the same four people in the same band with nobody no personnel changes yeah And when we finally disbanded, it was for completely good reason, which was Tim was getting offers from major labels. And of course he wanted to do that and none of us wanted to stand in the way. So the band disbanded. He actually gave us a full year's notice uh, and we parted on good terms. And then we got back together again a bunch 
In yeah. fact, starting in 2010, we had a whole sort of second round of Hot Rise and put out two records and had one year where we played 30 festivals and all that. So uh, I'm very proud of how Hot Rise functioned uh, as a sociological unit, you might say. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Going back to your own playing, when do you think you began to see your own playing style emerge? And what, I guess, as a addendum to that, what do you think are the elements of your personal playing style? Keith, I compliment you on an excellent question. I don't know if I've ever been asked that question, and it's key. It's very important. I got to know John Hartford quite well, and John was an amazing stylist. And he liked to talk about his progression where he first wanted, all he wanted to do was imitate Earl Scruggs. And he got pretty far along, but it still wasn't as good as Earl. And then he realized to really imitate Earl Scruggs was to let something come out of himself and then master it. So John developed a number of completely unique stylistic things in his own playing, the way he would fret the fifth string and incorporate it with melodies that were happening on the first string. When anybody does that, people go, oh, like, that's like John Hartford. <laughs> and that's, that you know, John's been dead about 20 years now, but that would make him smile to know that somebody realized that that particular playing came from John. <laughs> and John would then say, yeah, but you now have to make up your own stuff. So one of the um, catalysts, I would say, for my own developing style was I was a young player, I was a teenager, and then a guy in his 20s when the 1960s was happening. There was a tremendous burst of creativity. Uh, the Beatles and the Beach Boys opened up rock and roll to new chord changes and uh, melodies that were totally unheard of from the rock and roll of the Elvis era and uh, the doo-wop vocals and stuff. Um, suddenly we had a whole different bunch of elements that these guys were bringing in, and they were only a few years older than me. And so I knew a lot of people who were starting to write songs and writing stuff. And what happened is I would be goofing around on the banjo and something I wasn't expecting would come out. And once in a while it was cool and interesting. And so I would stick with it. I would try to think, well, what's the next thing I'd like to hear? And when I was in my early 20s, I wrote a tune based on a pretty simple lick, but I realized that it was something that nobody else played. Mm -hmm. So my, my big three, and I've always taught this to even advanced players, my big three is something that somebody else doesn't play. It's got to sound good. And it's better if it's not too hard to do. Because mm -hmm. <laughs> so then you can actually execute it and execute it well, because once it becomes reliable, as something you can just play the correct notes, you can do the icing on the cake part, which is now I'm going to make it sound really good. Yeah. 
So what do you think those three things were for you? So the first tune I wrote like that was called Huckling the Berries, um, based on a very simple lick where I was trying to learn a Bill Keith lick, and I tried a variation of it, and it was different. Bill didn't play that, so I spun it into this tune. And then uh, there was a song called Remington Ride that a lot of people know, and I made up a variation of that and then threw in some other chords, and I had a new tune, and to be funny, I called it Armadillo Breakdown. <laughs> so a lot of people wondered, uh, what's that all about? Like you saw an armadillo get run over or something? <laughs> no, I'm just trying to think of a funny word to go with yeah. breakdown. And then it got recorded by other people, and it's actually a jam session tune that people do. Uh, so it doesn't have to be rocket science or something incredibly difficult to set yourself apart from people. But both of those tunes used a flat seven chord. And I started realizing that any tune that I made up or song would typically have a flat seven chord in it. So that's an element of style. You know, Earl Scruggs didn't do that especially. Most of his compositions were one, four, five, or maybe there's a two chord in there. Yeah. But he hardly did any new tunes that had a flat seven chord in them. And for people who don't know theory, that's just like an F chord in the key of G. Right. Um, and in Hot Rise, we have a joke, which is Pete comes along with a new tuner song. Somebody's going to say, I bet it has an F chord in it. I say, <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> and probably the majority of tunes that I'm proud of as original tunes have that flat seven. So uh, that's an example. And there's other examples. A lot of people, when they tell me they like my style, they usually talk about how it's bluesy. Mm-hmm. And uh, one uh, one stylistic element that's uh, that I started incorporating as soon as I became aware of it was basically a Tony Rice thing. So here's and here's the famous on the set you sliding into the second string third fret. Sorry, it's a little out of tune. And the very first thing you hear after the pinch in Foggy Mountain Breakdown is this note. That's the flatted fifth that's the note before and the flatted fifth tony rice made several delicious meals out of things involving the flatted fifth and that was just not a note that people used very much and typically he would pull off from the second second fret of the guitar to the first fret on the second string and I thought, oh, we had all kinds of bluesy songs in Hot Rise, like 99 Years in One Dark Day, where the, <laughs> the guy kills his woman and he goes to jail and he's going to be in for 99 years and then he's going to die. So there's enough blues just in the first verse to set the tone. And just messing with those or... Yeah. There's, I'm using the fourth note of the scale, but I'm pulling off down to it from the flatted fifth. So I'm starting with a flat seven note, the F on the third fret of the first string. Then I pull off, like I said, from two to one. And then the third fret of the third string, which is a common place. So I made up licks for 99 years, and I used them in High on a Mountain that Hot Rise did. And those are bluesy songs, and I just used that liberally. And that same flatted fifth can be found in other places. In fact, 
for the banjo players looking for new ideas, this is one of the high payoff easy ones to do. You put two fingers, the middle and the ring, on the middle two strings, second and third, at the sixth fret of all places. So one of those is the flat seven and one of those is the flat fifth. Mm. So you got you got the elements of the Tony Rice <laughs> magic. And then you can just resolve it by moving the flat seven up to the, the root note and you got some stuff to manage with. And I rarely teach people exact licks. I more, mostly show them places where they can put their fingers where suddenly they have a nice group of notes that they can order, reorder any way they want and make up their own licks. Some of them yeah. might even fit the melody of the song that they're playing, which is especially handy. Right. So that's what my style is about, is adding colors to the... I played the melody. Very. I'm really a Scruggs person when it comes to see if you can play the exact melody and phrase it exactly the way the singer would. Scruggs went to amazing lengths to do that, where he had to try different things with his role just to make the melody notes come out at the right time exactly, not just sort of. Like Reno didn't care if it they really landed at the right time. Scruggs did. So you yeah. could learn the melody of the song just by listening to the banjo break. And very few people play that way. It takes extra effort to do that. And Jimmy Martin would make his players do that. But most even high level players don't think to do that. Tony Trishka has gotten into that gospel as well. So he teaches that. But John Hartford uh, talked about Earl plays the syllables or plays the words to the song. And, and Earl would even use that terminology. I play the words. And John gave me amazing examples of Earl going out of his way to play the words when other people would just play standard licks. Like when he recorded Folsom Prison Blues and took two different breaks on it. One was the syllabication of the first verse of that song. And his next break was the syllabication of the second verse, which had different oh, syllables. Interesting. So the second break has the bet there's young old folks eating in those fancy dining cars, which is different from, I hear that train a coming, coming round the bend. They're different. Wow. So he played them different. And that was a great example. And I used to think people in Jimmy Martin's band were playing like easy banjo breaks. They sounded easy because the guy could execute very mm -hmm. well. But then when I tried to just say, oh, I could play that, and it was thinking tonight in my blue eyes. And that was a hard break <laughs> to find all those melody notes. They're all over the place. And the, the guy on the record did it perfect. And it took me a long time to learn how to do it perfect. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's part of my style. I, I think that the listener deserves to hear the melody. If, if the song is good enough to play, then the banjo player should play the melody. And then maybe if they get a second break, they can go nuts a little bit. But J Jimmy Martin wanted the, the listeners to know exactly what song it was from the opening banjo break. And I think that's a great value. And it's not just a fifties, 1950s thing. It's a right now thing. People like melodies and should respect the melody, but I love adding colors. And in my style, I was fortunate. My, I had some friends who were pretty, uh, you know, one's now actually a well-known serious music composer. He's a prophet Yale, but Thanks to him, I knew what a ninth was, and I knew what an augmented was. And that just means typically moving one finger with your left hand, and you 
you change the chord. And if you get sophisticated about when it's good to use a ninth or an augmented, you can do stuff that you don't hear any other banjo players doing. I'm not saying they don't know how to do it. Bela knows all that stuff, but that's not the way he plays. You know, he, he just, he has different priorities, but me, I, I like just inserting a color when I can uh, to fit the, what the song is about. And this is really important to me as an artist. In Hot Rise, we had any number of different songs about different things. We had, you know, anger songs. We had happy songs. We yeah. had scary songs. songs. Yeah. We had gospel songs. Right. And they all have their flavors. And if you just play standard licks on every song, you're not going to sound different from one song to the other. But if somebody listens to me play high on a mountain and they hear me playing footsteps so near and then they hear me playing uh, if I should wander back tonight, you, you know, they're going to hear a whole lot of different stuff and it won't be the same stuff somebody else is doing, but it always fits my three favorite things. Sounds good. Other people don't do it. <laughs> and it's not that hard. <laughs> like I'm terrible on melodic yeah. style. I, I have a hard time with it. I love it but I can't play it very well. So when I have to, I have to practice huge amounts to get it reliable. And most of the stuff that I make up does not involve melodic style because I'm afraid I'll botch it. Yeah. <laughs> hey everyone, Keith here. I was just chilling in my backyard studio again and thought I need to tell everyone about our great, great sponsors. The first is Peghead Nation. Peghead Nation is a streaming site to take courses in banjo, guitar, mandolin, fiddle, dobro, upright bass, uke, and through those courses you can learn bluegrass, old time, and plenty of other styles from some of the best instructors in all of Roots music. PegheadNation.com features a great lineup of banjo instruction. Here are some of the courses. Beginning bluegrass banjo with Bill Evans. You know him. He also teaches bluegrass banjo. You can learn Clawhammer Banjo with Evie Layden, Wade Ward-style banjo with Bruce Molsky, the banjo according to Danny Barnes, or contemporary bluegrass banjo with Wes Corbett. Now, each of these courses include high-quality multi-angle video lessons, downloadable notation and tab, play-along tracks, and plenty of tunes and songs to play. And the bonus feature of these is that just by being a listener of Picky Fingers, you can get your first month free. Just go to pegheadnation.com, use the promo code PICKYFINGERS at checkout, and you'll get to sample any of these for absolutely free. Picky Fingers is also brought to you in part by Elderly Instruments up in Lansing, Michigan. We all know that it's so much cooler to support small independent businesses, and it really helps out when that independent business also happens to be the most knowledgeable and trusted source around for new used and vintage stringed instruments. And I'm talking, of course, about elderly instruments. They've been family owned and operated since 1972. And you can go to elderly.com to check out their wide selection of all stringed instruments. We're talking all the banjos and banjo accessories and learning products that you could ever want. But if you happen to have a hankering for Let's say electric guitar, acoustic guitar, fiddles, ukes, mandolins. They have all that too. So once again, just go to elderly.com or give them a call at 517-372-7880 to talk to one of their knowledgeable sales representatives. You know, I keep bragging about Michigan, 
but it's hard not to. If you drive from where a lot of the Motown records were recorded and you drive toward Kalamazoo, which is where all those pre-war Gibson banjos were made, along the way you get to Battle Creek, which is the home of GHS Strings, another sponsor of the show. You know, even those pre-war Gibson banjos don't sound like much without a good set of strings on them. And GHS are some of the best. And you know that they're some of the best because they're the ones chosen by players such as Bela Fleck, J.D. Crow, Sonny Osborne, and me. I've been a user of their PF145 banjo set for quite a few years. And if you need strings for your guitar, mandolin, or any of those other instruments, they're going to have that too. So check out ghsstrings.com for their full selection. Let's talk a bit more about uh, Hot Rise. When I listen to a lot of those great old albums, one thing that strikes me is how much everything breathes and there's space and clarity around each of the instruments. And I'm just wondering if that was an intentional approach by that band, and if so, how did how did that come together? Well, one thing is we were a four-piece band. We were always a four-piece band. When you have four pieces and the singer is playing one of those pieces and he's not going to be playing backup for himself. That leaves the bass, the guitar, and the banjo. So the banjo has a lot of space to work with. When Charles would take a break, I gave him the full space. I wouldn't play anything like a roll behind Charles's break because that would, I think, step on the guitar playing. And I had that urge beaten out of me early on by guitar players who mouthed off at me saying, you know, I can't hear myself. And I'd say, well, I'm playing quietly. But the fact was that I was playing louder than I realized because when you're behind the banjo, you don't know how loud it is. And when you're 10 feet away from the banjo and it's pointed at you, it's hard to hear what you're playing on the guitar. What I do at my banjo camps, in fact, is I have everybody play a little lick in their usual way. And then I say, now lay the banjo down flat on your lap and pointed right up at your face and play the same lick. And they do, and I say, didn't it get loud? Mm -hmm. I said, yeah, it really got loud. (laughs) I said, guess what? That's how loud you really are. It didn't (laughs) get loud, it was the same volume. If you think you're as loud (laughs) as you think when you're behind the banjo, you're wrong. So in Hot Rise, uh, uh, I was even told pretty early on to not even play the banjo at all while we were sitting around the mic, don't even play. And so I thought it would be enough if I just went to, I'll play quiet. They said, no, don't play. I said, okay, I'll just chop. And they said, don't even chop. (laughs) I said, you mean just stand there and hold the banjo? And they said, try it. This is the first year of the band. And as Tim said, I think you'll sing better when the banjo's not in there. And we'll all sing better if we don't hear the banjo right in the middle of the harmony. And they were completely right. That's what I started doing. And against Charles's guitar breaks, I developed a pretty standard thing, which is I would chop not just a full chop chord, but I'd go way up the neck and I'd only play the first and the fourth strings using an F position. And the first and the fourth strings are going to give you the root note. Mm-hmm. And I'd hear Ralph Stanley do that kind of backup sometimes where he was just playing those two strings. And it was it was really well defined and it used no space. It was like a metronome click practically. Yeah. So Charles, who had a beautiful sounding guitar and prized the tone that he made, had the entire canvas 
to work with. Tim and I'd be chopping, the bass would be well out of the way, and Charles's beautiful tone would be appreciated by everybody, and he wouldn't have to worry about getting a little quiet because the banjo might step on my quiet notes. The banjo was far away from where he was. So that's an example of us creating space for each other. And there was even time when, when Brian Sutton joined the band after Charles had passed away, Brian was into a changlang style, as we in Hot Rise called it, which is a lot of up and down of the strum. And that's a fairly popular way that people play. Like that's how Dan Tominsky plays rhythm yeah. on the guitar. And it's not a bad thing, but it uses a lot of tonal space. And space is part of the music. Mm-hmm. Just because there's space doesn't mean, oh, we better fill that. It, it's part of the music. Yeah. And my very favorite uh, instrumental rock band was the band. They were amazing when it comes five different people playing and you could hear any one of them. Anytime you tuned into any one of them, you could hear what they were doing or not doing. Levon Helm, very economic style of drumming, but everybody's very forceful. If they're playing it, they're not just doodling. They're adding something to the music. So that was the hot rise attitude and it wasn't we got it from the band but that's just an example of another band that plays trying to do that yeah so we'd get out on stage and play blue night typically and everybody's loaded with adrenaline and they're banging on their instruments <laughs> everybody uh, one of our on our video tim breaks a string on the very first song because we're all revved up but we're not getting fancy we're just digging into the most critical elements of the song, whether it's the melody or just the backbeat or whatever. And we're pounding away and we're listening for the groove. We want to establish the groove immediately where we're all playing the groove. And if you're playing the groove, I mean, if you hear a good drummer, just start a good groove with nothing else, you're going to start tapping your foot. You're going to have a good time listening to just that drummer. You don't need a whole bunch of elements to make the music better necessarily. So, those are principles that I learned in music that then I applied to Hot Rise and everybody in Hot Rise was thinking the same way. And I went and heard Stevie Ray Vaughan and he had, he had two musicians with him. Right. And I thought, well, it'll probably get boring. Well, it never got boring. <laughs> he was so dang good. And he, all he needed was bass and drums and himself to make a great sound. And uh, if he had had a, a horn section, I don't know if I would have liked it one bit better. So. That's, I think everybody can stand to think of that. And that's one thing beautiful about bluegrass. It's not supposed to be played by 10 musicians. It's supposed to be played by five musicians or maybe four. And even three-piece music can be incredibly interesting and complex. And that's fewer people to pay. (laughs) (laughs) So back to sociology, everybody in Hot Rise was hurting for money, kind of, in the first years of the band. And we were four-piece. We had somebody who could play fiddle, which would be Tim. So we could have a fiddle sometimes. And on the record, he'd overdub fiddle. Yeah. But we only had to pay four people. I was the agent, so we didn't even have to pay an agent. We could just divide the money after the gas was paid for and whatever long-distance telephone calls I had a bill to the band. Uh, let's talk about the phaser. Thank you. 
it's used pretty heavily on your first album and then of course regularly throughout the the hot rise years what was it about the phaser that that drew you to it and made it made you incorporate it into a regular part of your sound and you don't have to incriminate yourself here either <laughs> no here's here's the, the story i went to a music store thinking i'd like to do something different on the banjo i don't like how the banjo you play a note and it goes away i once in a while i'd like to just land on a note and have it sustain like an electric guitar could and then I could even bend the note while it was sustaining and I'd have a new effect on the banjo and otherwise it would sound regular but every once in a while I'd make a note last longer. So I went to a major music store in New York City looking for a reverb pedal and they didn't have one. So while I'm standing around doing this and that I hear this beautiful sound and it's coming from a single electric guitar player sitting on an amp and he's playing through an MXR Phase 90. And it sounds so beautiful and full and extended and has a little warble in it. And I said, wow, I've heard that sound on records and stuff. Uh, sometimes pianos go through it. Basically, it's an electronic imitation of a Leslie speaker. And it makes this warble. Uh, the Beatles uh, created a sound like that by delaying a, a tape by simply uh, holding a, a finger on the tape reel the flange, the, the flanging, metal part, yeah. and that was called flanging. <laughs> but then I tried it through a microphone. I just played through a microphone. I'd gotten an antique microphone, uh, uh, RCA 44BX, which is one of those uh, hexagonal-shaped microphones you see on a lot of album covers from the yeah. 40s and 50s. And it's very, it favors the low end quite a lot. And when I played into that microphone, and the microphone's plugged into the phaser, it had this big, fat, beautiful sound, and I would listen with headphones. And I made up some pretty neat stuff that I liked a lot while I was playing through the phaser. And I thought, all right, I was already hip to the idea of you have to have your own thing. And I thought, well, that would be my own thing. I never heard anybody <laughs> do that. Uh, so... Basically, I tried it. Flying Fish Records was amenable. They took the demo and let me make the record. And so I ran it up the flagpole. In fact, I decided the record wouldn't need to have guitar on it. The banjo sound with the phaser was big and fat enough so that the guitar's tone wasn't quite needed, but I wanted the rhythmic elements of the mandolin. I made up this kind of music, essentially, that it was phased banjo, rhythm mandolin, and electric bass. And I named it Niwot Music, because that's where I live, Niwot, <laughs> Colorado. And um, ran it up the flagpole. And I mean, I got a certain amount of like, what the heck is that? Uh, the, the spectrum ranges from, you know, I got, I got a reaction from Bill Monroe on it, which oh, really? uh, had a little mystery connected with it. But I also had very direct compliments of it unsolicited one was from pete kuykendall mm -hmm. from bluegrass unlimited and yeah. he's an old fogey and he said i like that and then i was sitting at a table at a festival uh, eaten with uh, norman blake and he says you know i like that face shifted sound and i'm thinking now that is one of the moldy figgest guys possible <laughs> and i thought wow that's some pretty good endorsements and then one, one time at a festival this guy comes running up to me and it's jim jesse's fiddler joe meadows Joe Meadows is the guy who played Orange Blossom Special on the Stanley Brothers recording. 
Okay. And he came up to me and said, man, that's a cool thing. <laughs> so I'm getting these compliments unsolicited and I'm saying, all right, it's okay. But then I believe at that same festival, Bill Monroe went up to the sound man and said, what is that on the banjo? What's happening with the banjo? And this was before Hot Rise. And the sound man happened to be Charles Sautel. <laughs> oh. And so he reported the uh, conversation, which was, I already told you, Bill Monroe's part. Charles's part was to try to explain it to Bill. And then Bill walked away. <laughs> so we didn't know exactly what he thought of it. But later we heard that from uh, somebody who was in Bill's band that... Um, Bill would speak a little bit uh, negatively about Hot Rise, but it wasn't just about the phase shifter. He just, I don't know what it was, but we knew that he was a fuss person. You know, he was fussy <laughs> and he had something he was very protective of, which is the bluegrass sound. But he ended up being nice to us and he was nice to me, although he was always scary. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's always fun to tell this little Bill Monroe story. Hot Rose is pretty established in Boulder, and Bill Monroe was hired to play at the largest venue in Boulder, the Chautauqua Auditorium, and we were the opening act. And so when Monroe showed up for sound check, I did my usual, which is to go and greet him and say how great it was that we were with him and how much we loved his music. And he accepted the compliment, but he didn't kind of pick up on anything. So I had the guts to ask him something that was on my mind, which is, I asked him, Bill, you know, since I was in college, when I interviewed you on my radio show, and I've done interviews with you a number of times, and I've been around you a lot, but I'm, I'm never sure if you recognize me. Do you remember me? And he looks at me and he says, I remember you. I remember you good. <laughs> and that's all he said. <laughs> Probably Continuing to, to scare me, as always. Yeah. But then at the end of the show, he came up to me and said, your band sounded good tonight, Peter. That's the kind of guy Monroe was. He didn't mind keeping his hard cards really close to his chest. And he, I'm sure he enjoyed the fact that he scared people. I'm sure of it. And then when he gave you his blessing, it meant all the more. Mm -hmm. So that's the story of me and my face shifter, <laughs> uh, basically. You know, I, I was tempted to use it more a lot at the beginning of Hot Rise, but... You know, when I used it on Prayer Bells of Heaven, somebody said, you know, do you really need to play the face shifter on Prayer Bells <laughs> of Heaven? And so I've always used it sparingly uh, in Hot Rise. There's a Facebook group for my listeners, and I previewed that I was going to be meeting up with you today and solicited questions. And among them, there was a listener who, who really loves that track called Skyrider. Maybe I'm assuming, is that one of your original compositions? Yeah, I made that up. It seems like a banjo tune, yeah. Uh, just what the background of that was, or maybe what the writing process was like on that one. When you, how do, how do you start a tune and have it sound different right at the beginning? That's a puzzle, you know. Um, you don't want to confuse the listener, but 
you want it to be different. There's an awful lot of banjo tunes that don't sound like a lot of thought went into them. They're well executed, but it's basically a lot of the same licks and, oh, wow, what, what about that B-flat chord they threw in there? So I didn't want to have that. So I'm sure, I don't remember the exact creative process, but... And then landing on the four chord there at a sort of an unlikely time helps. Mm -hmm. And then right away to my go-to chord. <laughs> F chord. Now that lick. That's used as a G lick all over the place, but usually at the end of a break. And here I'm using it as the melody of the song. Dun 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 da 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 dum da da dum da dum ba dum ba dum bum bum. That's a nice melody. So when I had that, I said, "All right, this is going to be a tune. What am I going to do now?" So next thing to do is repeat that. And then what else am I going to do? Well, we got to need a bridge. So I said, "All right, how about the F chord again?" So F chord to C. Back to the F. Okay. Well, there's that same lick again. I'm kind of quoting from the first part of the song into the second. And that was good, but I really wanted something special to finish the solo. And that's when I went to... So what that is, is that's a... B flat chord with the first string open. So you have to use three fingers on strings two, three, and four at the third fret. Now that's me putting my index finger, which is available, down on the first fret of the first string. C chord. And now here's, well, it looks more like a G seventh than a B flat, but it is a B flat. That's just two fingers at the third fret on the first two strings. So the melodies. But we finish on a C chord. We finish on the break on a four chord. Okay. Now that's unusual. But so you like flat seventh chords so much that you use two different flat seventh chords in that tune. You oh, go yes, to the and the flat three chord, which is <laughs> a Beach Boys chord. <laughs> <laughs> and I love the Beach Boys. So that B-flat chord is not illegal in bluegrass. It's just very rare. Mm-hmm. That's great. Take something rare and stick it in and see if it fits. You know, that's a great compositional device, if you ask me. And I use flatted six chords sometimes, too, like the E-flat chord in the key of G. Um, and none of those, if they're, you know, like Snowflake Reel, which is an old fiddle tune, uses the flat six chord. So if you know there's a precedent for it that nobody got worked up about, <laughs> you know, it's legal. And then you just have to see if it fits, you know. So when I'm making something up, I'll try all sorts of stuff. I put a lot of stuff on the table and then I pick the stuff that seems to fit best together. One of the reasons I started the band originally called the Live Five, Pete Wernick's Live Five, and then I changed it to Pete Wernick and Flexigrass. That's my band. I'm the leader. I was not the leader of Hot Rise. I was the instigator. 
but I was not the leader. It was a democratic band. We had to pretty much agree on all the material. Uh, we, we decided that if anybody didn't particularly like a song or didn't like, you know, disliked it, we didn't have to do it. We'll do one that everybody likes. So when Hot Rise had disbanded and I started Flexigrass, I thought, well, uh, I have all these tunes I've written that wouldn't have been Hot Rise tunes, but I showed them to the people in this band. And three of the people in that band are from jazz backgrounds. One, the clarinet and the vibraphone and the bass player are all uh, more into swing jazz and such. And in fact, the vibraphone player that we have for the last almost 20 years is a guy who leads his own jazz band and he's kind of a modern jazz player, but he liked bluegrass. Yeah. So I'd say, well, you boys are going to have to learn the melody. <laughs> I don't want to hear you playing just over the chords. Like you don't care what the melody is. You got to play the melody and then you can do whatever you want. And I like the way a jazz player might embellish bluegrass if they understand, you know, the, the bluegrass idiom enough. And so I've had the same people in that band for, a long time, 20 years is the average length of uh, being in our band or even more than that. Because we started in 92 and still have guys that were in the band in the 20th century, four out of five. So it's collaborative. I mean, I use their ideas, but I'm still the last word. And I say, no, I don't want you to do that. Do something else. And I could never really do that in Hot Rise or other bands I was in. So... I enjoy, I have enjoyed being the band leader of that band and um, being able to use a lot of my compositions. Like I have probably something like 40 instrumentals now that I've recorded that I made up myself. And a lot of them are with either Country Cooking or Hot Rise, but quite a few of them are with the Flexigrass band. Yeah. And uh, that's one of the ways I make my mark. I don't know if, I mean, most of those tunes have never been covered by anyone else. That's when you know you've got a good tune. But some of my earlier, easier to copy songs like Huckling the Berries and Armadillo Breakdown, those have made the rounds. And um, that's a wonderful feeling when somebody else does your stuff. Yeah, yeah, cool. On that same note, you have done all these using a phaser type of stuff in a band with electric bass, and you've had vibraphones and flutes and clarinets on your albums. <laughs> but you're also a fierce supporter, obviously, of traditional bluegrass. You were the IBMA president for some time, and you do all this teaching. And there, there's a lot of people who don't want to see other influences in bluegrass or think that you're not, you must not be a real bluegrass musician if you're doing that kind of stuff. What do you, <laughs> I don't, do you have anything that you would respond with to people who might see that as a a conflict? Well, it's not a zero something where if you put some extra attention into something else, you had to take it away from the first thing. Mm -hmm. Now, bluegrass to me is not just a kind of music. It's also a subculture. It's an amazing community of people. And the fact that we all love Jimmy Martin and we all love Bill Monroe and we all love Earl Scruggs, that is part of what bonds us together, but also we just love the sound of acoustic instruments. We love standing in a circle of five people and making music together. And Bill Monroe came up with that formula, and it was so long ago, as we're now about 70-something years past when he did that, but it's still extremely potent. Even the, po the Punch Brothers play exactly those five instruments. Mm -hmm. And they're, most of the, their instruments were made in the 20s and 30s besides. <laughs> so they're pretty retro at their foundation, and then they go off in every imaginable direction. So I think accessibility is the most important thing. 
that is, I don't know why I like it, but I like it. <laughs> you don't have to know why you like it. And I did that with a phase shifter, and I did it with um, Flexigrass saying, if I think it really sounds good, I'm going to do it. I had already made my mark in some ways when I started going over the line, and I was conscious of the fact, well, I hate this, I'm going to stop doing it. But even though a few people hated it, I, I was booking the band, and one person said, well, I'd be happy to hire Hot Rise, but you have to leave that phase shifter home. And I said, uh, nothing doing. And then I went back to the band and I said, is that okay? Can I do that? Or should I call the guy back and say, I won't use the phase shifter? And they said, stand your ground. Well, just turn down the gig. And of course, some of my very favorite musicians had to stand up against people saying, no, that, that's not right. Yeah. <laughs> but they knew it sounded good, so they stuck with it. But if I think it sounds good, and it, it's going to hurt part of my career. Well, it might help the other part of my career. Mm-hmm. So, in fact, Earl Scruggs, when I played him Foggy Mountain Special, as done by Flexigrass, with the clarinet playing the fiddle solo exactly note for note. And he, was, he smiled a little bit. He was pretty, he wasn't lavish about compliments. <laughs> but he said, don't let anybody tell you what you shouldn't be playing, he said. And... Um, that was good to hear. Uh, he never said, uh, well, actually, uh, I brought the Flexigrass guys over to his house and we jammed. <laughs> that was fun. Oh, really? they, and of course, the jazz guys were pretty amazed to be playing with Earl Scruggs. I, uh-huh. I said, well, it's something like being able to play with Benny Goodman or somebody. Uh, the guy right. who set the style years ago and it was nice enough to open his home and uh, you know his music a little bit to these guys. So that's how I fielded it. You know, being controversial is not something you have to avoid, but you just be careful about it. And there's so many great uh, creative people who've had to deal with people not liking something that they did and wanting them to be more orthodox that there's plenty of good role models on stand your ground and see if you can get away with it. And, Preferably, I'd like it to be, I mean, when, John, uh, when David Grisman started dog music, he didn't have to fend off people who didn't like it. Everybody liked it. I yeah. liked it. And I thought, wow, I'd like to make up something that is different. And right away, everybody likes it. Uh, so I maybe didn't get 100% on that score, but it got high enough. Yeah, great. Um, so anyone who listens to my show regularly have heard me talk a lot about masters of the five string banjo and how I look at that as almost a written model for my now audio format. So of course I'm endlessly grateful to all the work that you and Tony did with that. Talk for a minute or two about what it was like putting that together. And then also more personally, do you have any tips for interviewing banjo players? (laughs) Yeah, I do actually, Keith. And by the way, I think you're doing great. So nothing to correct anything you've done, but thanks. I'll just start on that last part, which is I've done a lot of interviews. I had a radio show starting when I was a teenager on my college station. And I had the only bluegrass show in New York city for seven years on an FM station that reached all over the metropolitan area. I was very fortunate to have that opportunity. So I got to do a lot of people interview a lot of people. And then when I uh, wrote a bluegrass songbook in 1974, I thought the best way to teach about singing would be to interview 
Jimmy Martin, Ralph Stanley, and I interviewed a ton of these people. And after a while, I got used to the thing where some of these people don't really like to talk. They, they would rather do it than talk about it. But Masters of the Five String Banjo was like me and Tony being everybody's geek. We're, mm-hmm. we're standing for like, you mean I get to talk to J.D. Crow for two hours? Wow, I'll ask him everything. So yeah. I did. And uh, I interviewed, you know, John Hartford and um, Alan Shelton and some great banjo players. Yeah. And the first, you know, because they don't maybe know you even that much. So you have to kind of let them know that you're hip to what they do. And you're not just going to ask them the same dumb questions that most interviewers ask them. You know, nothing wrong with how did you get started in music and that kind of stuff. But sometimes that's as far as they go. And in fact, Tony Rice in the Bluegrass Unlimited interview from 1985 that I did that just got published, Tony actually complimented me on my questions hmm. because they weren't the typical questions. So my, my little routine is you first start asking them stuff that they can easily answer. But then you ask them stuff like, um, where'd you play yesterday? And you ask them stuff like pet peeves or anything you're particularly proud of, you know, sort of get under their skin a little bit and see if you can tie the subject to some emotion that they feel after they've had a chance to warm up and get friendly with you and understand that you're not going to, you're not an idiot who's going to ask them the wrong question. Like Larry Sparks, when did you start playing banjo? Uh, You know, (laughs) something like that, you know, that Larry's going to clam up with a person like that. But when I say, well, you know, what's that song? Uh, John Deere tractor, you know, where'd you get that song? That song, makes me feel emotional every time I hear it. Now he knows he's talking to a simpatico brother in arms, you might say. And he also knows that I'm a traveling musician. So he'll give me a higher quality answer than he would to a generic interviewer. So you sort of let them know you're going to understand when they say something a little bit deeper than usual. And once once you've done what I've just described, you can just let the interview go where it will because they might start bringing something up. And then if you see that it has triggered an emotion in them and they want to talk about it, well, you let them. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So you've asked me about composing and what makes my style different. That's exactly the kind of question I'm delighted to answer because I've really worked on that and I rarely get asked about it. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and I would, I'd like all the banjo players of the world who listen to your show. You know, how many are there? About five billion or so. Uh, oh, and <laughs> I want counting, them to yeah. all hear what I, what I said. <laughs> and so uh, you're doing good. And, and uh, the Masters of the Five String, we sort of just basically took, you know, J- Tony and I just arrived at a large list of questions down to, like, how you wear your picks and uh, just every little bit of trivia. So once in a while, that's a very dumb question, right? Well, John Hickman straightens his picks straight out. And most people like Bela Fleck or Earl Scruggs, they bend them around their fingertips. So when I asked Ralph Stanley, I said, what, how do you wear your finger picks? And he said, well, I like to twist them. And I said, well, how do you do that? And he says, with my teeth. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, oh, good. That's a good answer. Yeah. That'll go in the book, of course. And um, so we had a lot of fun doing these interviews. Uh, some of them were on the phone. Bru- uh, Butch Robbins was a fascinating interview because he had just 
stopped playing with Bill Monroe for four years, and he had a whole complex about Bill Monroe, both positive and negative. And um, he did the unusual thing of when uh, I asked him, I forget how Bela Fleck came up, but Butch was not all sold on Bela Fleck. And he said something like, someday Bela will figure out how to play just one note. (laughs) And so Butch is quite a deep person. He's an amazing conversationalist. If you ever get a chance to interview him, I, mm-hmm. uh, you'll hear stuff you wouldn't hear from anybody else. Plus, he was working off of the Bill Monroe complex that he had. So we had a very inter- interesting interview. And um, I was proud of every one of the interviews. Uh, but then we had so much more work to do after the interviews were done. One was just transcribing the stupid things. Oh, yeah. <laughs> And a certain amount of editing. And then I decided all these people that we didn't interview, they're, the, they're so great. You know, Curtis McPeak just passed away and he, he's at 93, but he was somebody I really thought should be in the book. And Gene Parker, who played in The Lost and Found, a wonderful stylist. I wanted him in the book. And uh, there were these new people coming along like Allison Brown, who was at the time quite young, and a guy in... Europe named Philippe Bourgeois, who is a great banjo player in the style of Alan Mundy. He's not heard from very much on banjo now, but all these people. And I thought, well, Murphy Henry, she's an important teacher. You know, people should hear what she has to say. So we ended up including close to 70 banjo players in the book. We couldn't interview them all. So I did what my sociology training had helped me do, which is I created a questionnaire and I sent all of these people questionnaires, and if they didn't answer, we bugged them. So I got questionnaires back from Rudy Lyle and Dave Evans. Dave Evans had three exclamation points on almost the end of every sentence. <laughs> <laughs> That's, that <laughs> and, makes so much sense. That's hilarious. Yeah, and you know Vic Jordan and all these people that really deserve. Uh, and I felt real bad about Bill Emerson. You know, Bill Emerson was sort of buried in the Navy band at the time. Nobody knew what he was doing. And if he had stayed in the country gentleman, we would have interviewed him. Same with Eddie Adcock, who was at the time playing with David Allen Coe, and he was playing sort of a non-banjo instrument, a banjo-ish instrument, and he wasn't in circulation in bluegrass. So I thought maybe these guys won't even be known by the time, you know, years pass by. Well, they both came back to bluegrass, and a number of people roasted me for not... making a bigger deal out of Eddie Adcock. But Eddie understood. He was very nice about it. And um, uh, so what I ended up with, as I'm sure you're aware, or anybody who has the book, we had something like a 16-page chart where we asked everybody, all right, what's your first banjo? What's your banjo now? What's the height of the action at the 12th fret? What bridge are you using? Who were your biggest influences on the banjo? And who were your biggest influences who weren't banjo players? a ton of the critical information and instead of, and then we gave him one chance to say, got any advice. So we get advice from Allison Brown. We get advice from Dave Evans, you know, and some of them were quite interesting and it all got in the book. We thought if we submitted a 450 page book, they'd edit the crap out of it and we'd end up with a hundred page book, (laughs) but they just took the whole thing and they printed it. Oh, but it was great. so big, they had to charge $30 for it, which was a very high price in 1987. And it didn't sell very well at all. Hmm. 
my first banjo instruction book had sold over 100,000, so I assumed this would sell at least 100,000 because it had all these guys in it. But I was wrong. It took seven years to sell out the first printing. Seven years. And then when it sold out, they just let it go out of print. And that was very disappointing to have done all this work, and now the book's not even available. But then I started noticing people were looking for it with a passion and the price on eBay had gone over $200. Mm. <laughs> so I got in touch with my friend, John Lawless, who do, did the AccuTab book. And now yeah. is Mr. Bluegrass today. And I said, um, would you publish this book? And he says, well, I don't know. It's going to be very expensive to print all of that stuff. And I said, and he decided that he'd have to have 300 people on board who promised to buy it, which happened. But mm. then he also up the list price to $60, but it, it's been selling ever since he printed it and yeah. I sell it for less than $60. And I believe if you Google it, where can I buy it? I'm pretty sure I'm the only person selling it. But every time we run out of books, I get some more from John and the book has stayed in print and now it's been in print a third of a century. <laughs> so a lot of these people have died there's a whole generation of players who are not even in the book. We managed to get Scott Vestal into the book, but when I asked Sammy Sheeler, he, he, he was more of a hippie at the time, and he never answered, <laughs> so he didn't get in the book. And there's just this amazing generation of young banjo players now. None of them are in the book. So people say, hey, I have an idea for you, Pete. Write a second book. And I said, you write the second book. <laughs> <laughs> and you see if you can sell 10,000 copies and make back uh, some of them you know, it took us three years <laughs> and I'm not enthused to write it again, although I'd sure read it if somebody else wrote it. And we even had two prominent banjo players come to us and say, or at least they came to me and said, we, we'd like to do that. And I said, I'll help you. I'll give you all the advice I can. But I just wanted you to know it takes a long time and it didn't sell very well. And yeah, somehow Ned, Ned was going to do it, right? Heart. I'm sorry? Wasn't Ned going to do it? Ned? Ned Luberecki? Yes, he was one of them. The other guy um, was, um, why am I having trouble with names? He, he writes for Banjo Newsletter, wonderful guy uh, from Canada. Oh, Ian. Ian Perry. Yep. Yeah, that's, they, that was the two of them. It must have been about 10 years ago they came up with that, and then uh, I scared them off without wanting to, but I just was factual with them. The funnest part of that book was, conversing with people like J.D. Crow and Alan Shelton and Alan Mundy. But the work of getting all the photographs taken, getting the tablatures. Tony did a lot of the tablatures. I didn't have to do them. And then just uh, the usual publication stuff that goes along. And then for me, making, getting together that chart with all those banjo players on it, that was a lot of work, but it was, a labor, it was all a labor of love. I just knew that it would be an important book forever. And my sister, who was a, a writer and an editor, when she saw the book, she, she said, wow, there should be a book like that for every discipline, mm -hmm. every discipline where you have the masters of the discipline just and what they did. Yeah, it's a goldmine. I don't know of any other book like that in, for any field at all, but um, that was me and Tony being geeks on behalf of all the geeks out there wanted to <laughs> read the stuff and... Uh, uh, it's very encouraging that it keeps selling and it costs about 50 bucks to mail it to Europe now because the postage rates are so high, but there's people in Europe and Australia buying that book. 
because they just have to have it. And, and I get why they have to have it. When I was young, I would have had to have it. <laughs> yeah. I, I recommend it to everyone all the time. And well, you're yeah, a good so. man, Keith. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Let's move on to your instruments. What is your primary banjo these days? My entire life of banjos that I owned, the beater I had at first, then I got a bow tie, 1962 archtop Gibson master tone, and hats off to Roger Sprung for offering that banjo to me for a low enough price to buy it. I saw it in a store for $345, and I thought I could never afford that. So Roger came in at $235, and I ended up with a first-class banjo. Yeah. Uh, but uh, then I thought, well, I have to have a pre-war. So uh, when Red Allen and the Kentuckians came on my radio show, Porter Church was on banjo, and boy, did he sound good. And then he told me his banjo was for sale, and I thought, ooh, I could sound like Porter Church. Well, it turned out <laughs> when I bought the banjo, it took more than that to sound, still sound just sounded like, like you. <laughs> uh, but he was such a great banjo player. And um, and then I just worked on making that banjo sound. It, and it was a 1931 banjo that was originally an RB1, but it had a tone ring in it. Somebody mm -hmm. had put a tone ring in it. So I played that all the way from 1966 all the way into Hot Rise, and it would have been my banjo for life. But I received the banjo that I still play in 1988. And that was a brand new Gibson Granada that Greg Rich presented to me. And that was a huge honor because Greg Rich is one of the great banjo luthiers of all time. And I knew he was making great banjos and Alan Shelton told me, I got this one for free because <laughs> they wanted people to know that there were Granadas now, new Granadas and they were good. So I asked for one of those, and Greg came to the hotel and where I was staying in Nashville, and he presented it to me. And I said, oh, this is amazing. It was so yeah. beautiful and sounded so good. And I said, all right, well, what do I have to do? Do I, should I, have, do I have to stop playing my old uh, pre-war? Uh, do I have to be in photos? And on, when I'm on TV, do I have to play it? And he answered, if you don't like it, I want it back. That, that didn't seem to answer the question. So I asked him all over again, and he answered, if you don't like it, I want it back. <laughs> That's one of those John Hartford-like, Sphinx-like right. answers. <laughs> yeah, thanks, and, but no thanks. And I thought, okay, he's saying the banjo, if, if you love it, you, you should have it. And if you don't love it, why would I want you to have it? So I was still so attached to the other one, I would play... So, like I played at the Strawberry Festival that year, 1988, and I uh, played one set on the, the pre-war and one set on the Granada. And I was still trying to figure out what to do about it. And then I, after the second set, uh, three people came up to me as a group and said, the Granada is better. Oh, wow. So the three people were John Hartford, David Grisman, and um, Bela Fleck. Huh. <laughs> the three of them were all at the festival and they wanted me to know this. Well, what an honor. Yeah. So that was that. And I, I had to do a little bit of work on the banjo, found the tone ring was not a tight fit. And Luthier John Ramsey here in Colorado uh, made it a tight fit. And uh, he also made a, a, me a few different bridges for it that are all just like regular Gibson type bridges, except uh, a little bit taller. 
I wanted a 11 sixteenths bridge because my hand is a little large. And so he made me a few and I picked one of those to be the bridge. And that was the banjo. And now I use a skinhead on it, uh, the, the kind that John Balch makes that oh. are pretty expensive, but he treats them. He does all this good stuff to a, st- a standard piece of cowhide. He planes it so it's uh, uniform in thickness. And he also uh, treats it with something so that if you sweat, it doesn't suddenly make the head turn into <laughs> a rubbery uh, thing. Because that happened to me once and the banjo became unplayable. And I said, I guess that's a problem. And he says, well, it's going to cost more, but I can treat it. I said, do that. So the head has not broken. It's been in all kinds of weather. Yeah, and you live in Colorado where it's very dry. It's very so dry, it, but when I go be... to a humid place, I probably have to tighten the head a little bit. Mm-hmm. But then when I go back to Colorado and it tightens back up again and it's even maybe a little tighter, I tend to like it. Because uh, it's crisper. So I always tell people you can do whatever you want to the banjo, but the main thing that you need to do is practice so your hands get the sound you want. The, the sound is in your brain and in your hands, and it's much less in the banjo, as I've had proven to me time and again. Like when mm-hmm. I played JD's banjo, I thought, how does he get any tone out of this thing? <laughs> Same oh, with wow. Alan Mundy's banjo. And as soon as they pick it up, it's great. It's yeah. just I couldn't get the sound out of it. I even remember telling John Hickman, I said, man, um, it buzzes a lot. You, maybe you want to try heavier strings. And he was very polite, and he listened to me. And then when I heard him play it, couldn't have sounded better. didn't yeah. buzz. That's amazing. So it's all about the player's brain, what they want to hear. And usually you put any banjo in it in a player's hands and it's going to end up sounding pretty close to the way they sound on their main banjo. Well, e- even though I know you're, you're right, people do still get curious about this stuff. So take us through, take us through the rest of what you're using for, for picks and strings. And uh, all well, I use Just relatively heavy strings that I discovered a long time ago uh, by accident and the gauges go all the way up to 24 for the fourth string. Mm-hmm. Uh, starting at the fifth string, it's 10, 24, 16 for a third string, which is about as heavy as anybody uses, and then yeah. 12 and 10. And the brand is GHS, but uh, I don't love GHS over other brands. It's just that they're the ones that I've made the deal with. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I have them make strings with double loops on them. Uh, that is not just the loop that fixes that goes to the tailpiece, but if you put a little screw, a real small screw right through the hole in tuning peg, now you have a, a little nub sticking out of the tuning peg. And if you have a looped end of, of the string, oh. you just slip the loop over the little screw that's in there. And then you tighten it up and you didn't have to use clippers. You can do it in the dark by feel, which <laughs> you, you can't thread. A, you know, It's a really good little invention. And I thought I was going to make a ton of money from it when I came up with it, but um, I was told by string uh, makers that they'd have to create an entirely new machine to put loops on both ends of a banjo string. And I thought, well, could I patent it? And and it turns out that a string with a loop on both sides of it has already been invented for a very practical use, but not for a musical purpose, but for an archery bow. Oh. Okay. So I was told you couldn't patent it, but you could have a use patent. 
But then when nobody was interested in even making such strings, except <laughs> GHS makes them by hand where they have to hand loop, you know, make the loop, the second loop by hand, and it costs money to do mm -hmm. that. Uh, it sort of killed that as a commercial idea, but it could have been for mandolin strings, banjo strings, uh, because everybody hates changing strings. And I don't hate it because it's so easy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I've changed, cool. sometimes I thought, geez, I guess. I should change strings and it's like five minutes before the set or 10 and people say you should change you, you know you shouldn't do that and i'd say yeah. oh, just watch me and suddenly the banjo has all brand new strings on it i stretch them a little bit and i can play just fine yeah so i love the speed of it or being able to change a broken string real fast but um anyway that's my spiel on strings and otherwise it's a pretty standard gibson granada with a standard tailpiece and the bridge is uh, this one uh, that I now have on there, but I had I had tested out a lot of bridges and I had a rating sheet, you know, which ones I liked the best because the bridge is really an important part of the sound, and uh, so I had number one on there, mm -hmm. and um, uh, but I, you know it's still uh, it's still up to me to be a good banjo player. It's not up to my bridge to make me sound for good. sure, for sure. You know, and then I think. Earl just tuned up his banjo, as Rob McCurry told me once. People don't talk about this, he said, but there's never anybody been able to tune a banjo as well as Earl Scruggs. And hmm. he's right. So many live shows you hear, and he's never out of tune. Well, a couple of exceptions, but I even, you know, there he is playing Little Darling Pal of mine with um, Jake on bass, and you see him tuning the banjo in the middle of the song just to <laughs> fix it. And I, so I rolled the recording back and I say, what did he hear that was wrong? And I can't hear what was wrong, but he could. Yeah. And he fixed it right in the middle of the song Interesting. on TV. And uh, that tells you something. Uh, it's, it's just, it's up to the player. You know, the player will find a way to make the instrument sound good. If it needs adjustment because it's buzzing or needs to have its strings changed, okay. But Sonny Osborne, when he was interviewed by Tony Trishka, and Tony asked him how often he changed strings. Sonny laughed at him. He says, I don't know if they break. Yeah, never. He says, why? He says, how often do you change strings? And Tony says, well, I don't know, every, every show or something like that. And, and Sonny laughed at him. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's crazy. <laughs> anyway, so, that, so that's my story on banjo setup. There's a lot you can talk about. And there's people who would rather talk setup for two hours than practice. And that's a bad choice, in my opinion. Well, we need those people, too, though, who, who know that stuff. Oh, yes. Stuff. Yeah, it's true. The, the, it's a big, wide world, and uh, th that stuff doesn't actually interest me very much. So I, I usually duck out and say, try it, and if you like the sound, use it. And if you don't like the sound, go back to the other way. That's my yeah. formula for how to set up your banjo. Last gear question. Do you have a preferred microphone for live and or studio? When I came into my windfall, when my banjo book sold so many copies and I suddenly had more money than I expected, I had hung around with Carlton Haney, the guy who started Bluegrass Festivals. Yeah. And he had a lot of theories. Some of them were crackpot, but some of them not. <laughs> and I would hang out and talk with him a bunch. And he said, the reason Earl Scruggs sounded so good is because the microphones he was using. And I said, oh, really, what microphone? And he said, well, these RCA ones. And, you know, he, he didn't even know, really. But I 
there was a place that sold used gear and I was able to get two RCA 44 BX microphones, vintage wow. microphones. Yeah. And I used one of them on my solo record, Dr. Banjo Steps Out. Mm-hmm. But it had no high end. It had tons of low end and not much high end. So I used it in conjunction with another microphone that had a higher end. And that was just a pain in the butt to have that situation. Very heavy microphone, fragile. It's a ribbon microphone. Mm-hmm. And um, on stage, I found that the SM57, sure, you know, the one that you can throw against the wall and it won't break. Yeah. And it costs 100 bucks. <laughs> That's like a lot of people's favorite banjo microphone, as proved in Masters of the Five String. Uh, and a lot has changed since then. It was that middle 1980s, but it's still a great mic for the banjo. Mm-hmm. And I would just routinely use it because it rejects feedback very well and you can work it. The, its pickup pattern is such that you can, just by the way you lean into it, you can control your volume. And I learned how to sort of use my distance almost like a volume pedal yeah. for backup. If I want to be loud for one second, I can just lean into it. But we had a really good sound man for Hot Rise who chose the SM6, which is a new microphone, large diaphragm, and I forget even whether it's a condenser or not. That's a good sounding microphone. The one I used in the studio on almost every Hot Rise record was an AKG 414 CE. I think uh, Charles made sure I memorized it. (laughs) Um, But I used that a lot, and that has everything you like it has the high end it has the low end yeah and a very nice sound character it's pretty accurate it doesn't color the micro the sound the way the sure sm57 does colors it in a nice way it kind of trims off a little bit of the nastiest high end if you have some buzzes or something and it's it it really does a good job on the low end and just it's a good balanced microphone it's used for vocals a lot uh they call it a 58 because the windscreen's different for vocals, but it's the same microphone. It's amazing. It's a war horse that's been around for decades and it's remains cheap. And that's always what I would recommend. And again, if you're not sounding good enough, go back and practice some more. Yeah. Don't blame it on the microphone. Of course. But the, the, the condenser microphone did a good job. Um, and, and uh, in the studio, I use that. Or if the, if the engineer has a, has a hunch, I always let them try it. And I don't even remember what I use now. I used to ask Earl Scruggs about microphones. I said, uh, did you have a favorite? He said, oh yeah. I said, what was it? He says, I don't know, it was kind of skinny. <laughs> <laughs> Earl was just so uneducated about certain things, including he couldn't describe what he was doing. They used to bug him to write a banjo book. And he says, this can't be written down. He said, so he didn't do a banjo book for the year mm-hmm. for years until Bill Keith showed up with transcriptions. Yeah. Um, because he didn't know what he was doing and he couldn't play it. He told me once, I can't imagine how somebody could play Foggy Mountain Breakdown twice in a row exactly the same way. I said, well, thanks to your book, there's people who only know one way to do it. Right. That's the only way they can play it. And he just stared off in the distance and says, yeah, I don't understand that. so uh and earl was very sophisticated about stuff when it came to how to present he was very conscious of what he should do and what he shouldn't do and a lot of times he would choose to play less Mm -hmm. uh, because of his philosophy of understanding how music was accepted by his crowd his public which were not 
sophisticated people, but they knew when they loved something and he knew he had something they loved and he could produce it. You could even see on his face how satisfying it was for him to know that he was delighting people. But he, he never bragged. He was very much of a non-bragger. You talked about your band suggesting that you perhaps lay out on the banjo playing during the chorus, so to speak. Yeah. Early, I would see Earl do that on those old shows. Well, he would was... not touch the banjo. He was typically um, not holding it like I would, but he would chop. Okay. Um, which is pretty equivalent. And he wasn't facing the banjo into the vocal microphone, so you didn't especially hear his chop, but it's a natural thing to want to do. It's kind of like tapping your foot in a way just to for yeah, your body a, to feel a, the beat. Involuntary almost, yeah. Yeah, well, banjo, you know, if you're a mandolin player, a guitar player, a bass player, you have a whole limb of your body. Your whole arm is stating the rhythm to you. So you have a metronome, so to speak, right in your body that feels the beat. The banjo, you don't have that because the beat sometimes is played by the middle finger, sometimes by the index finger, sometimes by the thumb. And there's so much syncopation going on. Like there's a lot of times when the melody is not on the fifth string, but the first note you play in the roll is the fifth string. So the, the, the note that is the melody comes a little bit late, but that's, you like that. You do it yeah. on purpose. But what you lose is the chance for having a limb of your body keeping time for you. So that's why when you hear a player like Scruggs or JD, and they have this amazing metronome running their playing, it's so dependable that you can tell the difference, even though everybody else is, they're not out of time, but they're, these guys are so in time, you, you like it more. And yeah. that's, that's a treasure that, and it's very hard to duplicate. There's very few people who, Ralph Stanley's another one, when, when you hear him playing, you know exactly where the beat is. You want to tap your foot. I know we're going long, but if people want to listen to the end of this interview, they'll hear some of my favorite advice, which I'll give right now, which is there's four parts of the body that you want to activate in the listener. And if you can do that, you'll get the big bucks. Some of them are easier. One is you have to tickle the ear with your tone, just like somebody with a caustic voice you don't want to hear them talk but somebody with a nice voice you want to hear them talk so you have to tickle the ear so that's one of the easier ones another part of the body is the foot which represents somebody keeping rhythm and if you play really good rhythm people's feet will tap automatically even if they're not really even if they're having a conversation with somebody so i made a point playing at a club where half the people are talking i would just watch look around the room and see if people were tapping the, the end, uh, you know, the booth that they're sitting at or the table or look for feet tapping. And if they were tapping, I'm okay. If they're not tapping, I'm thinking, come on, give them some beat. Make those feet tap, whether they're up and dancing or not. But Monroe was all about that because he was a dancer and he knew how important regular rhythm was. So that's two parts of the body. Oh, yeah, the brain. Forgot the brain. Be interesting. You can't be boring if you play the same stuff that somebody else plays. Somebody might, their attention might wander. Mm -hmm. But just by being dynamic, like just if I'm being boring talking and I go, you know something? People go, what, what, what? If you go, you know something? And I just discovered gold in, you know, under my house. <laughs> it might be interesting content, but if you don't put some expression into it, they might miss it. So 
and you also have to edit yourself. You, you, you know, if there's a long, boring part of your new instrumental, replace it with something interesting. And even the way you name the tune or introduce it on stage will heighten interest. So you need to please the audience's brains. So the fourth part is the part where the money really is, which is the heart, which is I care. I don't know why I care about Willie Nelson, but every time I see him sing, I care about him. (laughs) And Bill Monroe totally care about him. Jimmy Martin, he made sure I cared about the lyrics of the song. A guy I know who is a really good band leader and he's a wonderful musician, but he doesn't get big crowds. I said, you're a big admirer of Jimmy Martin. Just the way he talked to the audience made people care. They sometimes cared that he would stop drinking so much, but at least they cared because he was so dang talented and he wanted you to love him so much that he he extracted that. And there's a lot of different ways to make people care. You know, J.D. Crowe did it very straight-faced, not talking like Jimmy Martin, but just delivering so beautifully and picking such good material and things like that. So that's the fourth part of the body. And uh, you might be getting $10 for tickets if you do the first three parts. But if you want to get the 20 or the $30 for, for your concert, you have to have the fourth element. And uh, Hot Rise got into that zone partly by Tim O'Brien's great singing, partly thanks to Nick's great MC work, partly thanks to Red Knuckles and the Trailblazers, mm-hmm. partly thanks to the Bluegrass Mystery, Charles Sautel, who people wanted to know more about because he never talked. Yeah. <laughs> And um, we had a way of presenting ourselves that we honed very carefully to make people care and like our show. So we had funny stuff. We had deep, serious stuff in the, in the program. And uh, if you can somehow put that into your banjo playing, and another one of my favorite bits of advice is I say, all right, we're playing this song. It's called um, Riding at Midnight Train. So what if there was a movie somebody made called Riding at Midnight Train? Uh, you're going to play the soundtrack for that movie. So are you going to just play your standard licks or are you going to play the ones that sound like you're never satisfied? I'm right. I don't, you know, these awful blues will follow me wherever I may go. That's bluesy. So deliver something that fits that feeling. And if there's raindrops in the song, you can play a raindrop sounding thing. I have water sounds that I make. I have bird sounds that I make. So if there's a bird in the song, I play my birdie sounding licks, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm trying to play the soundtrack of the plot of the song that if they made a movie of the song, they'd use my banjo for the soundtrack. And I don't think hardly anybody approaches banjo playing like that. But if you're serving the song, that's the best way I know to serve the song. That makes a lot of sense. Speaking of your playing, I'll finish here with a classic Masters of the Five String question. What, uh, What recorded example are of your own playing is the one that you're most proud of? I've heard a few things lately that I'm just so proud of. One of them is, it's just a composition of mine that Jerry Douglas did a brilliant job producing called Birdsong Creek. Okay. And it's on my, on a roll record. And a lot of my favorite stuff is on that record. I had, I had my full hot rise chops up and running and I had a lot of creative stuff that hadn't done yet with hot rise. And I had an incredible bunch of musicians helping me out. So that whole record is my favorite record showing my style off. But one cut I just listened to the other day, this great fiddle tune in the key of B that was written by um, 
Greg Durth, an old bandmate of Tim O'Brien's before Hot Rise. Hmm. And it's a fiddle tune in B, and I don't think there's any other fiddle tune in B. And it is bluesy like crazy, and Tim plays the crap out of it. Listen to that, and then I listened to a live version recorded after the band had disbanded. My favorite Hot Rise record by far is called So Long of a Journey. It's taken from two live shows where we were totally in the groove, and there was so much stuff on there we could have made a more, we could have put out the whole both nights, but mm-hmm. it got boiled down to something like 19 cuts and empty pocket blues. That same fiddle tune is on there, and it's a live cut. And I'm proud of how I played on that. I just drove it, and Tim is right in the groove, and Charles plays an amazing break. (laughs) I'm so proud to have existed to ever hear that, and when I realized that's you on the banjo, I'm overjoyed. So That's great. That's great. If I pick any cut, and I like my break too, but (laughs) uh, it's, it's really the way we as a unit sound. Just four guys just playing the crap out of a song in B. Very good. So can't go wrong with that one. Let everyone know where to find you online. Give us uh, websites and anything that, they might need to know about that. Yeah, that would be Dr. Banjo, drbanjo.com, and tons of stuff on there. I ha- My entire tar- tab archive is on there. This guy in Minnesota named Brian Ford who tabbed a whole bunch of stuff just because he wanted to. And I said, could I sell it? And he said, oh, sure. So you Somebody yes, yesterday bought my entire tar, tab archive of like 300 breaks or something oh, wow. that I've recorded. And uh, that's on there. And so are a whole lot of articles, including my big treatise about how not to start the banjo and how instead start playing the banjo this way. Mm-hmm. And my ideas are definitely not according to what everybody else does. I started with that. I started writing tabs for people. And quickly found out that that was not the way I had learned banjo. And it was not the way anybody should learn banjo because it's not a question of memorizing a piece. It's a question of learning the language of how to make your right hand generate tone and timing and melody. And it could apply, you're, you know, play the same break, but it'll come out different every time. And that's like the Earl Scruggs way of playing as opposed to I memorized this and it's great and somebody else thought of it. It's not even my idea. (laughs) Somebody else thought of this. So um, there's articles all over the place in there. I have seven years worth of banjo newsletter columns. A lot of this stuff, almost all of it is free. Mm -hmm. So I always encourage people to go avail themselves of Pete Wernick's mind (laughs) talking (laughs) about the banjo. There's 180 questions and answers that I answer on there. So I like that. If anybody wants to uh, write me, they write Pete at drbanjo.com. I welcome people to write me, ask me questions, and I'll answer. We also have a separate website called letspick.org. Letspick.org, and that's for people 
want to get in on the Wernick method, want to learn about jamming. And now that spring is here and um, the COVID is being gradually uh, tamed, uh, a lot of people are now starting to run Wernick method classes. So anybody who wants to either just jam for fun or learn how jamming is done, those classes are happening all over the place, Australia to Czech Republic <laughs> to yeah. um, New Jersey. Wonderful. And uh, I'm also running the first banjo camp I've run since nine, since 2015, six years, no banjo camps. And I'm running one for all levels at a beautiful mountain location in Colorado, first week of August. It's a full five-day banjo camp. Very and cool. it's within a camp that's for fiddle players. So there's going to be fiddle players all around and other instruments and they will get to jam with other than just banjo players, which was one of the reasons I stopped banjo camps, because what do you do after hours? Jam <laughs> with five other banjo players? I don't know. Yeah. So uh, at, at this banjo camp, uh, that's part of the Rocky Mountain Fiddle Camp, not far from Colorado Springs, um, they, there's still room to register there. And sorry to keep plugging things, but I have two bluegrass camps where all the people at the camp are experienced players. We're not taking new players at all. Mm. We have separate camps for those folks, but these are like jam camps, but people can also get coached for performance factors or else just jam with a bunch of different people who are as good as they are. And these for experienced players. And at both of the camps that I'm doing like that, one's in North Carolina, one's in uh, New York state, we're short of banjo players. So if there's a banjo player listening to all this who says, yeah, I'd like to go someplace where I'd be in a band of with with four other people who are about my level and I'm the only banjo player in the jam and we get mm -hmm. coaching from Pete and a whole bunch of very good teachers. That's good reason to go. And you can look all that stuff up on let's pick org. That sounds great. Well, Pete, thanks for being so generous. Uh with your time. It was great hearing all your, your stories and your tips and everything. So I look forward to seeing you in person one of these days. Yes. And I won't, before signing off, I just have to compliment you so much on picking up this ball. You know, there's been a lot of stuff since Masters of the Five String and a banjo newsletter does a good job, but there's something about hearing the voice and the picking of a person right as part of an interview that is really special and you have your heart and your mind set in the right place to really serve banjo players. So I'm honored to be on your show and I appreciate your effort here. It's great. That's a great endorsement and I'll take it and thank you for that. That's, it's awesome. And it's definitely in the model of everything you said about the masters of the five string, just trying to, to capture it for all the geeks out there who can't be here right now. Well, it, if I may say just one more thing, I think bluegrass music is one of the best things that human beings have ever invented. And playing bluegrass music is one of the very top level. It's amazing what it took. You know, we were all just homo sapiens living in caves <laughs> not too many thousands of years ago. And now we have bluegrass music where people have learned these incredibly, just the fact that somebody made a Lloyd Lohr mandolin and a Gibson master tone banjo I don't know what other planets there are with life on them, but I don't think they've come up with that. And here we have 
bluegrass music that's been created and all the great learning materials available all over the place. And for people to not avail themselves of that seems, what a shame. They should at least learn how to play Will the Circle Be Unbroken? You know, three <laughs> chords, great song. They're missing Doesn't out. take that much effort. <laughs> I just, you know, that's that's my mission. I'm 75, and for the rest of my life, I don't know if I'll be making more instrumental albums or being out on the road gigging with bluegrass bands, but I know that I want people to jam, and, and I'm doing everything I can with the Wernick Method to get people into the bluegrass world where they can really do something and have fun. So uh, you're part of that, and the whole community is is facing a very good new future and I'm just so proud to be part of the bluegrass community. Yeah, I think so too. All right, well, that's a good sentiment there that we can leave people with. Good, positive vibes. Thanks for having me. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode of the Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast featuring Dr. Banjo Pete Wernick. You heard a whole bunch of sound clips, and in order, they were Spring Break by Pete Wernick, Salty Dog Blues by Flatten Scruggs, maybe you've heard of them, Gum Tree Canoe by John Hartford, Armadillo Breakdown by Pete Wernick, Nellie Kane by Hot Rise, Shady Grove by Pete Wernick, Sky Rider by Hot Rise, Birdsong Creek by Pete Wernick, and Empty Pocket Blues by Hot Rise. Lots of stuff there. Hope you enjoyed it. Don't forget to sign up for the Banjo Lit Prize giveaway by enrolling on patreon.com slash banjo podcast, and you'll be entered to win that wooden armrest and other prizes. Thank you again to Bill Livesay. He's the Patreon supporter of the week. Contact the show, pickyfingersbanjopodcast at gmail.com. And I'm going to say goodbye from here. Hopefully I'll be joining you again from the backyard studio next time. <laughs>